Hello and welcome to Artbox DNV. I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I spoke to Sando Burke. Sando approaches his themes and subject matters like gang violence, war, political and social issues through his painting, drawing, printmaking, film, and sculpture. We talk about his humble beginnings in art, what his work says about his ideas, and what challenges he faces doing social conscious art. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. All right. So, um, thank you again for doing this. I appreciate it. First hard-hitting question I have for you is, what's your origin story? How did you get your start in art? I guess sort of by accident. I uh, I was always like the kid that was drawing in, in school, like drawing on when I was supposed to be doing math or something. And uh, it, going through high school, I thought I might try to be an architect. Hmm. And so I applied to college to be an architect, and I got accepted to a couple of schools. And then sort of on a whim, I uh, took a tour of uh, the Otis Art Institute in downtown LA, and this was like 79. Mm -hmm. And so I go to art school, and no one's doing math. They're just like drawing naked people (laughs) and making stuff with clay. And I'm like, whoa, this is way better than being an architect. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, I told my parents, I want want to go to art school. And they were like super bummed. Um, And I guess to back up a little, uh, I grew up in the suburbs of LA and uh, I started surfing when I was like 11 years old. And so I was been surfing ever since but i was my parents like oh you should go to a university somewhere and i'm like well i'm only going to one that's got waves yeah so they were super bummed at that and then when i switched from architecture (laughs) to art school they were really bummed out (laughs) (laughs) but i went to art school and i really loved it i loved i didn't realize first of all i didn't even know that there was like people living in my city that were like professional artists as like a career and then uh to meet artists and then also, I just loved like the intellectual part of art. That was like really amazing to me. Art history and the concepts of art and discussions and everything. So I got really fascinated in art school, but then I was still surfing a lot. And growing up in SoCal as a surfer, common sort of ritual that you have when you turn 16 is you drive to Mexico and drink in the bars and surf in Mexico because it's only two hours away. So we would go to Mexico like every other weekend, me and my surfing friends. And then gradually we'd go like further into Mexico. And then pretty soon when I graduated high school, we went to Acapulco by plane. Wow. After my first year of college, I went to El Salvador and spent a month there surfing. I really had the bug to like travel and surf. And so I did two years of college and worked all through and saved up money with my best surfing friend. And we dropped out of college and took a car and we decided we we're going to drive all through Latin America with this old Jeep. And we ended up spending, the goal was we wanted to get to Brazil and see Carnival. That was our goal. And did you make your goal? Uh, we drove through Mexico for three months and the car pretty much died. Oh. So we sold it for junk and we took the bus to Panama and we flew to Colombia. And then we took the bus and the train all the way to Brazil and it took us eight months and we got to Rio one day before Carnival. We had an amazing time and after Carnival ended, we got a job in a surfboard factory and it ended up, to put it short, I ended up uh, living in Rio for four years. (laughs) (laughs) That must have been awesome though. I mean, you were exposed to so much, a a different culture, different art and concepts of art down there. And, And not to mention just the overall life experience of having it. Wow, that must have been awesome and fun. It was 
awesome. Yeah, I was like 23 years old and I had my own apartment and my own car and in Rio and just uh, working for surf companies and serving every day. It was it was pretty amazing. <laughs> but eventually I, I was working uh, in surfboard factories and I was then I started doing like surf clothing design and surf company advertising. And I ended up working for the surfing magazine. And I, uh, I got all this commercial experience, but I really realized that I really wanted to be a painter. I wanted to be like a real artist, like an art school. And so I decided to, to go back to LA and finish college. I only did four years of school. It took me 10 years to finish those four years. <laughs> so I got out, I think in 89, yeah. with a four-year degree in painting. I got a job working uh, part-time driving an art delivery truck around LA for a big shipping company, which was really interesting. Uh, so I was working part-time and painting part-time and just trying to become an artist with like four or five other people that came out of my year in school. So that's how it started, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so what mediums are you drawn to and why? And I'm assuming what, what drew you to painting opposed to getting involved with um, uh, lighting or performance art or any other kind of the forms of visual art? I guess painting because I've always liked that. Like if I'm doing a painting, like it's almost like it's almost like a model train set where you like it's like this whole world that you're creating. And if you just say, oh, I'd like to put like a, a tree over there, you can put a tree in. Or I want to put a gas station here. You can. So it's like this whole world that you can control and then you can erase the tree. And, whereas I was never that skilled at like s sculptural things or anything. So painting always was really amazing to me. And I had been interested in painting at the very beginning before I dropped out of school. And then I didn't want to draw the, the what'd you call it, the creation story so long. But uh, after Brazil, I ended up going to Europe uh, for a year. And I did a semester school in Paris and another semester in England on exchange program. And going to school in Paris is what really blew my mind because, you know, when I was growing, going to art school in LA, like an art history class, you sit in a chair and they're showing you like 35 millimeter slide transparencies. And, yep. you know, and I, then I still have nightmares, Paris, by the way, I have yeah. nightmares of that still. I had to take four, almost three years of that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I still have nightmares, but anyway, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mind it. But then when you're in Paris, that my actual art history class was in the loop. So you're just standing in front of like the raft of the Medusa. Mm, yeah. And, and coming from LA, I was like, you know, LA is like the city where everything's about entertainment industry and TV and movies and stuff. Right. Painting isn't like a, a big thing or wasn't in 1980. And then to go to like Paris and you see like paintings like the size of a movie screen and you're hearing about like the art history of like, you know, Jericho paintings where people would like pay to see them and like stand in line, like as if it was, you know, we're in the 1800s and like painting was as, as important as movies are today. Oh yeah. And then, so I was just like, wow, this is, I want to make giant, enormous paintings like these. <laughs> <laughs> What drew you initially to doing uh, a lot of the the block print type work or the the print work? Was it just the the line work? What drew you, or it was just the the process? Uh, no, that's a, a sort of a different story. So I yeah. started painting, uh, had many shows. So like ten or fifteen years had gone by, and I was doing pretty well. And I was showing with Catherine Cart Gallery in San Francisco. I had gallery in LA, a gallery in uh, New York. So I was doing okay. And 
I had never studied printmaking and Catherine Cart Gallery in San Francisco had done a project with uh, this printmaker named Paul Maloney who was in in Hawaii on Maui. Okay. And so they he asked if I wanted to do a project and they said, do I want to go to Hawaii and do a print project? And <laughs> that <laughs> Ask took a, surfer, a second right? to decide. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, went out to Hawaii and spent a few weeks uh, in Maui working with Paul Maloney and I've been working with him ever since. I guess the woodblock prints I did with him were every time I've done a project with prints, it's sort of like me saying like, this is my idea. How do we do it? And then Paul Money says, Oh, we do it as an etching. We do it as a litho. We do it as a woodblocker. Ah. He sort of steers me to what is the best way to do it. So um, have you carved a lot and injured your fingers a lot carving into the wood? <laughs> um, my wife at the time we went out there this was like uh, when the war, when George Bush was president and the war in Iraq was going on. The old, old joy, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Paul Milani, I had done a short project with him. Like a year later, he calls me up and says, I have this window in my schedule if you want to come out and try to think of a project. And I said, sure. Yeah. I said, I don't have any ideas. And he said, just come out anyway, because he was uh, running a print shop at this uh, school in Maui called the Hui Noiao Visual Arts Center. Hmm. And they had a... They had an apartment on the campus that you could stay in. They had a print shop. And so they would bring in printers from outside and they'd try to get, you know, really well-known printers and then they'd sell the prints and that would help fund the school. Mm -hmm. And so they had this program and he said, well, you know, the apartment's vacant, come out here and we'll try to do a project. So uh, my wife and I went out there for, uh, I think, two or three weeks. And the first thing I did was go in his print shop and was looking through all his books and he had a book called like the history of printmaking or something so i was looking through that and came across the these prints by a guy named jacques callot from the 1600s and they were a series of these tiny little prints about the size of a dollar bill uh there's 18 prints that tell the story of the war uh, the 30 years war in belgium so i was like looking at them and then you're reading about them and they're saying like, these are some of the first like anti-war art because in the 1600s, the only patrons were like the church or the king. Yep. So he had done these little tiny prints that were, uh, it tells the story like the war starts and everything's going really good, but then the people rise up and there's a rebellion and then there's looting and burning and raping and pillaging. And then at the end, like the last scenes are like all the soldiers coming home with like missing limbs and, and stuff. So they were saying like, these are these um, really uh, you know, the, some of the first anti-war stuff that, that they sort of know about. And I was like, wow, these are super interesting because I went to art school and I know about Goya's prints from right. the 1800s, oh, yeah, yeah. which everyone knows, the disasters of war. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how come nobody knows about this guy beforehand? So I went to Paul and I said, we, can we do a series of prints about the war in Iraq that are like these? And he's like, yeah, yeah, we could do these little etchings that are just like the same as the Callos, like, you know, these tiny prints. And my wife says, no, no, you shouldn't do little prints based on little prints. You should do big prints based on little prints. So Paul Milani goes, oh, that's a, such a good idea. He's yeah. like, Let's, we could do giant wood blocks. And so we all jump in like a pickup and go to Home Depot and get like the biggest piece of wood you could get in Maui. And he's like, yeah, let's let's do these. And we just did one as a test and it started going good. So we ended up doing uh, 16 four by eight foot prints. Oof, four by eight. That's like a full sheet of like plywood. Yeah, it was a whole sheet of birch plywood, and uh, and they tell the whole story of the war in Iraq up 
till imagine ending because it was still going on at the time. <laughs> well, and what's funny is that in retrospect, because I, I saw your your I saw that series online, and uh, it was your last one was pretty depicted pretty well, but what happened at the end of it all? So. <laughs> Yeah, with people coming home missing limbs and everything. <laughs> yeah, and and you know then the insurgency, the thing that happened. Yeah, that was uh, that war went well. <laughs> yeah, but it was a great project because uh, I mean conceptually, you know, it went from sixteen hundred uh, Calo to eighteen hundred Goya to two thousands our project. So it's like every two hundred year jump. Yeah, there's a series of prints that are like basically telling the same story: how war is inevitable and constantly horrible, and ends the same way every time. Every time, yeah, I would agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) What does your art say about your ideas? You know, uh, I pay attention to the news and politics and, and world events, and so most often the work I do somehow is reflecting some kind of worry that I'm (laughs) some kind of horrible thing dilemma that I'm thinking about in the world so I guess in general I always sort of try to base my work on something coming out of art history and then relate it to something that's happening in our own times and and I I want my works to say something and and have meaning and say some message that I want to say uh well, yeah. I've always thought, you know, it takes a long time to do a painting. You know, you spend three weeks doing a painting. When you come out the end of it, I want it to convey something that's a message that's worth all that effort going into it. Well, and I noticed a lot of with the composition with your your paintings. It did strike me when I look at your work is is I do get the feeling that there is a lot of historical context in terms of your composition and it. Uh, like with your series with about your neighborhood um, with gangbangs and, and things going on. Some of, some of the scenes uh, that you depicted reminded me of um, when they took uh, Jesus off the cross and uh, Mary and all the apostles were around him holding him and cleaning him. It reminded me of a lot of the classics from uh, back in those days. A lot of your composition does. At just you know, just letting you know. Yeah, that that's correct. Yeah, I very often borrow compositions from you know the ones you're talking about, or like Caravaggio and things like that. Um, old religious paintings and turn them into urban scenes and stuff. But um, I often do that. Yeah, I I prefer you know the goal is that the original source material is connected to the fin the finished thing that I'm doing. Yeah. You know how the Calo War went connected to the war in Iraq, stuff like that. Yeah, because a lot of your work is uh, is social conscious, and what are the challenges uh, they that present themselves of doing social conscious art? Yeah, that is a, that's a great question, and and I have my answer because <laughs> it's something I've thought about a lot. The real problem is making if you're making more about. Uh, a certain issue is how does the work remain compelling once that issue is passed? Mm. Um, so like if you're doing work about the war in Iraq and the war in Iraq is over, is that work still interesting 15, 20 years later? And I would say the way I try to deal with that is uh, the project I did about the war in Iraq, for example, uh, it it's it's not just about the war in Iraq and how dumb George Bush was. It's about war in general and the the global theme of uh, what's it, the, the history of warfare. So mm-hmm. the project is 
is about war and all its horribleness and how it ties through centuries. And so when the war in Iraq is over, it still sort of can be seen as meaningful afterwards is the hope when you, when I do these projects. I was going to say some of your, your newer work is, uh, which I love. And, uh, there's the scene where it's like the uh, natives are, uh, welcoming the people from the West and the, the Westerners have their dogs pooping on the beach and the symbolism there and, uh, you know, uh, the, the themes of colonialism and, uh, it just, you can't help but chuckle, but at the same time, it's like, well, that's kind of really what, how it happened in, in the end. Um, yeah. and then one of your other works that, uh, one of your more recent works is where you have, um, uh, was it, uh, Amazon employees, um, uh, and a couple other employees from corporations that were fighting against cops and having a riot. And it's, and it just seems so timely what's going on nowadays with, with, uh, labor force kind of reawakening. And, um, and that also felt like it had more of a historical context too. Um, I forgot where I was going to go with this. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're talking about works that you saw recently in my right. show that just ended. Yes. And, uh, that I could talk about that project. Yeah, how did that come about for you, uh, besides gathering the information and doing the research, so to speak, and it influenced you? Uh, it came about because, like everyone, I was, I was watching the January 6th attacks on the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol, st- sort of <laughs> <laughs> stunned. And uh, uh, I had, you know, I'd, I'd spent time in D.C., like I told you, I've been to the U.S. Capitol, I've been in the Rotunda. And I was aware of like that room that they were in. And so you kept seeing all these scenes of the people milling around in the rotunda. And in that room, it has these eight enormous paintings that depict uh, the history of the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, If you know them, they're done by different artists. And four of them depict uh, scenes before the United States became a country. And four of them depict the war of independence or the creation of the, the country. And they all depict basically scenes of the heroism of white men overcoming obstacles. Right. Right. <laughs> and so I was, I remembered those paintings. I know what they were, you know, I've been interested in them and then seeing this riot happen. And I thought, man, those paintings suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, I could do better paintings. So the idea was like, I came, I, my show was, uh, eight new paintings that hypothetically should replace the ones that are there. And so I, dealt with this the same themes that are actually in the paintings in the u.s rotunda such as the landing of christopher columbus and the signing of the declaration of independence and yeah. things and i came up with my own either versions of those events or other american historical events that i thought would be more worthy of remembering in the u.s capitol because i kept thinking to myself that that would be awesome if they were or allowed to hang those paintings that you did in actual the rotunda <laughs> yeah would be and then awesome. i did uh like uh, photoshopped them in to the scenes of the of of the the riots and of like tours of the capitol as if my paintings were hanging there yeah. <laughs> which so, i thought was i saw that and picture, it, yeah. I, yeah and it changes <laughs> you know the context uh one of the paintings that i did was a painting of the Boston massacre, uh, which basically sparked the, the American revolution. Mm-hmm. The first person to be killed in the American revolution was this guy named Crispus Attucks, who was a sailor and he was in Boston, uh, like on leave. And he was a black guy who had, I think he had came from 
the Caribbean and he was at the Boston massacre and he like attacked with the, the mob. Uh, he attacked the redcoats and was shot and he's recorded as being the first person to die. Hmm. So a black man was the first American to die in the American revolution. And then on the same painting, I included uh, the, the murder of George Floyd by the police officers in Minneapolis. So it was like our history goes from, of the nation, the first black person killed to the last black person kill, <laughs> yeah. killed. Yeah. And then when I Photoshop it in and you see in the background of a bunch of Trump rioters and their MAGA, <laughs> uh, you know, how different would it be symbolically if all these white right wing guys were parading around in front of a painting that depicted our racist history? <laughs> yeah. yeah, when I saw that image, it, it, I did start chuckling to myself. And it, it, it you, I, I like the fact that your work is being provocative and kind of trying to help lunch people into thinking in a bigger picture about what happened there in on January 6th and uh, what's still happening now and what happened in the past. And uh, kudos. I think you yeah. did a very good well, job on that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Like uh, another example of the painting you're talking about of the landing of Christopher Columbus. Yeah. Another like unknown fact is that of the three of Christopher Columbus's ships, uh, one of them was piloted by a black guy. Hmm. Uh, Pedro Alonso Nino was his name, and he was one of the, uh, I don't know which ship he was in. So like one of the three first captains to sail over in the myth of Columbus is obscured, but he was an African-born uh, Spaniard. Wow. So that, he's, I, he's I, in I learned something new today. Wow. I didn't know that. Hmm. A lot of, a lot of uh, the interesting <laughs> history of, of people of color is, is swept under the rug. <laughs> oh, very much so. Yeah. And um, which brings up that huge print that you had there at the Kathleen Gart Gallery. It was a huge print and basically had, you know, the, the history of, of African-American yeah. history. And I thought that thing was very detailed and very, uh, very well researched. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I enjoy doing the research. But yeah, it's a 11 foot tall etching yeah. that I did again with uh, Paul Maloney. Uh, copper plates, uh, 24 copper plates that then he prints and then um, seams them all together like wallpaper into this enormous uh, 11 foot high print. And the print, the image is a, of an imaginary monument to the history of the United States as told only by the depicting achievements of people of color. And so it's called whiteout because there's no white people in it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was very, when I saw that uh, that piece, I was like, man, this thing is huge. It must have taken a very long time to do that one. I mean, just from uh, the concept, like us drawing it all out, to then doing it on, uh, etching it, oof, man, that must have took a while. <laughs> yeah, it, it took, you know, off and on working on it with uh, Paul and Melanie, it took about a year for him, from when I, you know, started it to when they were finished printing it. But uh, he's just, uh, Paul Maloney, his print shop's called Maloney Printing, and he was in Hawaii for 10 years, but then he was in San Francisco, and uh, this past couple of years, he's now moved to Portland, Oregon, where we did that project. <laughs> but his print shop is amazing. Uh, you know, you come to him with any idea, and he's like, yes, we can do an 11-foot-tall etching. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the big challenge for him is to do something that's 30 feet tall and 60 feet long. We'll do it. He'll do it. <laughs> I bet you, you have he'll an figure idea. it out. Away. He'll figure it out. 
does not make sense because you kind of answered it already. It was, uh, how is it possible to do historic paintings today? And as you kind of just explained, you, you can. <laughs> so I don't need to ask that. <laughs> yeah, I think you can. I, I, you know, uh, it's challenging, but I think you can. I'm interested in that too. You know, the first paintings that I were really amazed by, like I said, is when I went to Paris and was just amazed by these romantic over the top, you know, French romanticism, Napoleonic paintings. Yes. And I said, I want to do paintings like that. And then that seems like a crazy idea. How can you do paintings like the 1880s in, in the 21st century? And why would anyone want to do that? And how could it be meaningful? And so that's always a struggle. And, but I think, I think you can. <laughs> and I, I kind of want to say, I, I think you have. <laughs> so <laughs> I've tried, I've tried. Yeah. The, when I first was sort of starting out, I was sort of aided by, I was struggling on how to make meaningful paintings that were historic. And then in 1992, I was living in Hollywood when the, the, the LA riots hit and the city you know, the whole city was on fire for three days. And oh, yeah. it was like, uh, you couldn't go out of your house. There was like, you hear gunshots. And and right when I was struggling to figure out how to make these paintings, it was like suddenly like momentous times came to me. It's like we were living in the city that was the center of the world for three days and um, battles were happening outside your door. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so my first big success sort of became doing this series of paintings about the LA riots. And it looks like you haven't looked back. One of the things I wanted to ask you, too, um, is your influence. Because um, you would notice, uh, like uh, one of your interviews, you, you said you were influenced for a while by, uh, was it Thomas Nash? Nat? Nat? Thomas Nast? Yeah, Nast. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I yeah. spelled it. Yeah, Nast. So, because uh, um, like at one point you said you were kind of influenced by his work and uh, by his prints and the colors and the themes uh, yeah. Have what about today? What's influencing you in terms of uh, other artwork or uh, or just concepts? What's influencing you now nowadays? Yeah. Well, the the show that we're talking about about the imaginary paintings for the Capitol Rotunda. I mean, that just ended a month ago, so I'm still yeah. kind of in that vein. I'm still thinking of new like uh, paintings that should replace some of the traditional ones in American history. So I'm looking at those like. Uh, the early uh the early american painters from the what do you call it the the, the early co colonialist painters like mm. thomas birch oh, and yeah mm -hmm. uh you know the guys that painted the george washington paintings and stuff so that's what i've been looking at today but but in general i tend to fl flit around like uh i get interested in something and i'll do like a whole project and then when it's done like i'm i move on to a whole different topic Okay. So, like, for example, I was doing all these sort of historical paintings and I got tired of those and I thought that's done. And I started thinking, going back to like art history, I always try to think of like, what's something that's really amazing in paintings or something from art history that I totally love that are sort of like overlooked. Yeah, that's a challenge. Uh, <laughs> so for a while, this was like 15 years ago or more, but for a while I got really interested in uh like uh, American landscape painting, uh, like mm. the golden age of Albert Beardstadt and Thomas Moran. Yes. Uh, and those guys that were like coming out from the East coast with like the wagons, the exploring wagons and like painting scenes of like Yellowstone and the grand Canyon and Yosemite. 
uh, right, you know, right before photography. And they were, they'd take those paintings back to like the East coast and go, look, you know, the West is amazing. And they were like these propaganda posters for manifest destiny, basically. Yeah. So I was really interested in landscape painting and that led me to do this whole project about landscape painting. And then when I was done with that, I did, I got interested in Thomas Nast political cartoons. So I did a whole year of political cartoons. And so I sort of jump around getting new interests that spark new ideas. Well, I want to kind of pivot now, uh, kind of, this is the kind of the back half of the interview. Uh, I have noticed when I, when I looked at your uh, webpage and, and, you know, watched a couple of interviews and stuff, um, you, you seem to have done a lot of residencies and I wanted to know what's the role of, of an importance of residencies for artists. Oh yeah. I have done a lot of residencies and, uh, I, I chased them out. Um, let me see to, to put a short answer. I would say for me, residencies always turn out different than you think they're going to turn out. And that's the best part of them. Like you go, to a new place and start finding out stuff you didn't know about. And that results in like a whole new direction that you never thought you were going to do. Okay. So that's, that's what I've found. Um, yeah. I mean, to be more specific is uh, I did a, a residency at Smithsonian Institute in DC and I didn't really know DC and it was to spend three months in DC, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went to DC. I rented a little apartment in Roslyn neighborhood across from Georgetown. And they basically just like gave me like a backstage pass to all seven Smithsonian museums. So I could just you know, go and ask to see anything I want and go in anywhere and everything. And I initially went uh, thinking I was going to look at these Thomas Nast cartoons. Mm -hmm. And then I got, you know, DC is a tourist town so when i first got there i was doing all the tourist stuff and and i sort of noticed like the thing that struck me is like when you're in dc every every tourist thing is presented by like it's 1776 yeah. so it's like ben franklin ringing a bell like yeah. get on the bus or this <laughs> but you're walking down the street and you're going you're going past like the irs building and you're like wait a second the people in this building are doing things that affect my life like today yeah yeah. It's not. It's not all 1776. It's now yeah. the decisions being made in these buildings, and that led me. You know, I went to the archives and I saw the Constitution, and I picked up a pamphlet. And I'm like, I haven't read the Constitution start to finish since high school. Yeah, and I read it, and then I ended up doing this whole project about the U.S. Constitution, which was never the intention of the, the residency. Hmm. So sort of those experiences come along uh, when you let yourself go do something <laughs> in a different place. And also because I love traveling, you know, I always try to find a way to get myself to the beach somewhere around the world. So I chase, I hear about one near a surfing place and I'll try to <laughs> apply, apply to that and weasel into it. And I don't blame but, you. I don't blame you. I don't yeah. blame you if you do that. <laughs> so well, I think residences are really invaluable. So basically, you're you're saying that it's a chance to travel because you know this is kind of a, a a world of you work by yourself. You're in a little silo, so it helps you break out of the silo, yeah. and you get to travel and see different cultures. Or in our case, here in the states, you see how different things or people live in the parts of the state. Yeah, 
and you see stuff like uh i did a residency in mexico city uh where i went down there for three months and uh, i mean mexico city is, is for for art lovers mexico city is like as amazing as paris there's i think there's like 43 art museums in mexico city that you never even heard of wow and you go down you just go in there's like the museum of colonial art the museum of postage stamps the museum of printing the museum of of cowboys the museum of there's like so many museums that you just go stumble on whole kinds of stuff that you didn't even know existed and then you come back and and it inspires you to go off in a new direction so it sounds like uh yes do residencies go seek them out and find them or no you can do a lot of them you know there's a there's a lot of residencies i think artists don't realize what a great resource they are um there's a lot of residencies like in national parks i think yes so there'll, there'll be places like it's like uh let's i don't making this up but like let's say yellowstone in the middle of winter where they give you a free cabin for a month and and a thousand bucks to buy your food and you can just go stay in this cabin because no one's really using it in the middle of winter and you have these amazing experiences and so they're out there you, you people need to be more aware of them and, and go after them well i would agree and i i concur because because like you just said another hurts learning something new and residency yeah. definitely help with that or going in when you're overseas you meet other artists doing something different oh yeah and another thing i learned is you know you, you make stuff portable like uh <laughs> you you got to bring it home on a plane so you some you know it's a big piece of paper you can roll up and you're maybe doing it with you know ballpoint pens or something and it, it, you get away from this uh over reliance on having the perfect paint and the perfect stretch canvas yeah oh. more more daring i guess you get take more chances well with that question i have this is my favorite question and i may have told you about it before and I ask it all the time and I always get a different response. And, uh, cause that perfectly segues to this. What advice would you, you give to your past self and to other artists? <laughs> uh, I can I have a couple of things. Well, one, we just said apply to some residencies. Yeah, <laughs> get like I said, out there. Right. Right. I would say the best thing that I ever did without planning was I got a job working for this art delivery company. And then for about a year, I got a job working in an art gallery, a commercial art gallery in mm -hmm. LA. And I probably learned more working for those companies than I did in art school about what it really takes to be, have a, a art career because I learned like how to document my work, how to keep track of it, how to, you know, uh, pay your taxes, <laughs> how to, uh, get donations, how to meet collectors, how to hang a show, how to uh, go to a party and schming, you know, schmooze. <laughs> yeah, oh, right. Yeah. So, yeah. And how uh, art galleries work and to see it from the other side, because it's hard to run an art gallery and artists are often sort of prima donnas and, and expect too much. Yep. And where you, I think you need to see the, your art gallery as your partner and work with them to make your work successful. So, yeah, so working in the working in the art business and going to residencies would be my recommendations. Hmm. So that's for the other artists, but, but what about your past self? <laughs> what would I tell myself? Yeah, your past self. Yeah, now what you know, what you know now. Well, I guess those things I learned of myself. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I mean, I didn't Good know answer. them and, and I got a job and, and it, <laughs> it was so helpful. And, but yeah, I guess, and I've learned uh, to just believe in myself more. Hmm. You, you go, when you're starting out, you're so thinking it's like the riskiest thing to ever do. But if you just you know, make the best work you can and try to get as many people as you can to see it, yeah, that's, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds like good, sound advice that anyone and everyone should apply. Do you want to uh, bring up any new projects you're working on right now? Because I didn't notice that you were doing something with, I guess, the transit system in L.A.? Or did I misread that? No, that's true. I, I could mention that. Uh, yes, I am at the beginning of a long project to do uh, a whole uh, underground subway station for uh, the metro that they're expanding in LA. It was a, a competition which I applied to and went through various steps over the course of a year. Um, I finally won the commission. So I'm doing a whole station, like a, a mural that's like as long as a train. Mm. it'll be you know when you're standing waiting for the train it's the wall that you're looking at yeah it's interesting uh you know the la metro system is expanding super fast because they see well obviously they see that public transportation is better than freeways but also because the olympics are coming in 2028 so they're really it's going to be like double the size by 2028 so they're building like all these tunnels and stations um so this station of mine is going to be at UCLA and it's supposed to be done in six years. But my part of it is I just have to come up with a design, uh, you know, as like a painting, right. Almost like a, a large painting and give right. it to them. And then it's going to be uh, manufactured. Um, I think with uh, like an, a mosa glass mosaic or something. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah, it is cool. It's cool. So it's been interesting to work on. But that's what I've been doing this past week. Yeah. <laughs> Working on that project. <laughs> and then among the other projects you got going on right now, too, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. Well, public projects are, I've done a handful of public projects. They're, you know, I apply to them all the time. You rarely get them. When you get them, they're really good. But like this one goes on for years. And the way that it's beneficial is like you get like a chunk of money. You know, like when you say, okay, you're the one, here's like $5,000. And then like five months later, they're like, oh, well, here's your second meeting. Here's $5,000. And then it just, you know, the money gets sort of spread out. And when you're like an artist like me that only makes any income from painting, to have sort of this steady amount that you know is coming in is really helpful. Yeah, it is because you can really plan. You can, yeah. you can plan your stuff. Yeah, because I, I know what you mean because... Sometimes I wish they just give me all the money up front, but then other times I'm glad they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they they usually have this whole schedule. Like when you sign the contract, there's a chart, then there's a, a amount that you have to buy all the stuff you need to make it, and then the part when it finished making it, and the part when you start to install it, the part when you finish installing it, right? Part. To, so there's all these like they call them like milestones that you have to meet. That's a very corporate thing to say, milestones. <laughs> that's what they are there's a lot a lot of meetings you go to a meeting and then you sit around for two months till the next meeting <laughs> <laughs> well let's stack that and we can uh, circle back around this other issue <laughs> okay yeah you can tell that uh I'm not really familiar i hear of corporate talk but not of one yeah all right but well, yeah it's, it's interesting it's fun to do a public project what would be the most fun kind of uh, a public project that you could imagine that would be fun to do 
oh, that's easy. I, we just put my eight paintings in the Capitol Rotunda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to find a way to make that happen, right? <laughs> For real. <laughs> but I mean, I would imagine that would be so cool. But to be more realistic, you know, I you saw the show. You, this doesn't have to be on your. I had a show once a long time ago at American University. Oh yeah, and. I was thinking, man, it would be great to get these paintings there because to have them in the actual same city would be really meaningful. I want to say thank you to Sando for taking the time to do the interview. To learn more about Sando, go to his website at sandoburke.com. You can also go to his Instagram at sandoburke. To hear this episode and past episodes of Artbox TNB, head on over to the website at artboxdnv.com. Don't forget, ArtboxDNV is also on Instagram at ArtboxDNV. So, until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>